0: Okay, with uh, co-director Sam Katz, Gradually Then Suddenly the Bankruptcy of Detroit is the feature film. Uh, really, I really enjoy this film a lot. It kind of like you kind of uh, touch on a, in the blog interview. It's like a very complicated story about politics and about money and about finance that you have to make entertaining, I guess. that, that I guess that was the conflict of making your film, I guess, right?
1: Well, I think entertaining in in a way that was not undermining to the seriousness of, of the course, spirit. yeah. Um, but we didn't really have to create the drama. The drama was there. I mean, the the conflict between people over the future of pensions and healthcare, uh, over leadership, governance, and and dump democracy, uh, over whether to sell art, yeah, uh, the the collapse of the city services, uh, the regionalization of water all of this stuff was crammed into 14 months uh, of bankruptcy and so finding the story and finding the drama wasn't hard but making it accessible to audiences but that that from I don't think I had an appreciation when I started this how hard that would be and to this day I still have anxiety about whether in every frame or every section of the film we have we have made it understandable
0: Every film, every, every filmmaker has that has that anxiety, right, from top to bottom. But I think you pulled it off. I think it's a very and uh, but from a I'm I have a personal stake of Detroit because I'm from uh, I'm from uh, uh, Niagara Falls, but I had family in Windsor, Ontario. So we used to go to Detroit all the time to see uh, Tigers games and then the lions. And so I used to go to Detroit all the time. So and my dad was also an executive at general motors. So he, he would have to go there all the time for business as well. So I, like, I spend like my, all my childhood in Detroit and I saw the evolution of like free trade coming along and then, you know, like all, all the, all the factories going under. And I saw like the city kind of like not being safe to go. I guess, the older I got, I guess, to go, to go into the city was very, it was like falling apart, I guess.
1: Well, I think, first of all, Detroit has a huge emotional pull on people, whether they're from there exactly or the region. Uh, University of Michigan graduates, which there were many, uh, are many of. Uh, the fact that, you know, Windsor is to the south of an American city. Canada is below. Uh, yeah. Detroit so it's an interesting
0: yeah,
1: yeah. geography <laughs> um but it's a, and, and you, know, you think about music uh how Motown dominated the music scene for you know more than a decade uh the automobile industry was for the generation of World War II the factor the that won the war and you know it's like labor there and uh, the organization of um Public employee unions, and mm-hmm. there's just a tremendous amount of history in Detroit.
0: Hundred percent. Well, it's America, right? America. The in the, the manufacturing industry started in Detroit. Like, there's so much history there. Well, you know, every every city can make a
1: claim about that.
0: No, but I'm I'm talking about like I know I know what you're saying, but it's like if anybody thinks about the manufacturing industry, obviously automobiles, they think about Detroit. That's the first, the go to, I guess, right.
1: I think when you think about the most important product uh, that came out of American industrial history, it would have to be the automobile. Mm. And uh, there were plenty of competitors, and Henry Ford figured out how to do it cheaper and better. The greatest
0: invention of the 20th century, right? The the assembly line. I would think that would be a fair
1: statement. (laughs) Might be the worst one of the 21st century, but uh (laughs) yeah,
0: funny how that works. So okay, so I'd like like let's talk about the, the this. Did you like? Um, did you like write a script? Because it's like the way you kind of start the film is really interesting with the the girl, new generation. She's like walking around the city. It's like, it's kind of, it's staged of course but it really sets up the the kind of emotional toll. You're showing it from the point of view of the younger generation and what she's gonna think of Detroit. So it's a really great emotional jumping point. And then of course the, the film is dispersed with information and all kinds of interviews. So what was your guys' process? Did you guys like write a a cohesive script before you started filming? Like what was your, how did you kind of put this film together?
1: Well, we actually did that. Uh, Nathan Bomey, who uh, covered the story for the Detroit Free Press and who wrote a book about uh, the Detroit bankruptcy, uh, together with myself and with James McGovern, he did put a script together that was prior to interviewing anybody. And so every line in the script was aspirational. If you know what I mean, it was not something we had recorded where they had said. And it was sort of, it helped, I think it was probably overdone and it was certainly not uh, the best time spent. Uh, <laughs> because when you actually interview people, they say things, not only do they say things contrary to what you might think they were yeah. going to say, uh, but they certainly illuminate a path that under the lights of a camera, people in an interview situation um, tend to tell the story. Decidedly, from their point of view, and uh, I think that's one of the great features of documentary filmmaking. The little girl came uh, as a an icon, sort of an image of the city. She is the person for whom the city uh, is doing the least at this point. And uh, when we decided to film it, uh, I had to say I my co- my colleague James McGovern, who is co-director, co-producer, and really a superb film- filmmaker. Uh, describe this to me, and I—I—I'm more the public finance guy, and this is the story we're yeah. telling. I, you know, I—I I think the transition from being a more um, intellectually driven story to a more human, human impact-driven story occurred in the last two years of the film as we went through a lot of. Um, Tough times as a as a country, whether it was COVID or the Floyd murder and the uprising in cities, the election, the re- all everything has just been sort of quite shake you up. And so I think that we were informed by what was happening, and, uh, and we needed a character who could represent the city, but who was not themselves an activist. And she, we so we filmed her, and we did this. And I did not think when I saw the dailies that it was going to necessarily work. But it did. And it, it was did. probably, uh, you know, one of the better creative achievements of the film.
0: 100%. And how many people did you, you know, were interviewed in this film in total? I'm, I was trying to count it up when I was watching it again. It's like, it's in the. Well, we interviewed 137 people,
1: <laughs> 41 or 42 of whom are in the film. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. And I'm not so sure that was the, bre- the, the best and the brightest we could have done. But uh, for example, I went to California for 10 days uh, to the West Coast, and I I did 16 interviews, uh, principally about the three bankruptcies that had occurred in California before Detroit, maybe in, in tandem with Detroit in one case. And I I interviewed the federal judges who adjudicated those cases, the uh, one of the lawyers who did a lot of that kind of bankruptcy work and was a public finance guy. I interviewed the city managers in those cities, the reporters in those cities. I didn't use a single one of of those interviews in any way. But what I did was I learned a lot more about bankruptcy and especially what it looks like when you don't own an art museum. Yeah. Uh, For Detroit, the art museum was the life preserver uh, in terms of the, the, the way out of bankruptcy. These other cities took some very, very severe cuts in services, uh, pensions. Um, you know that th- there was more pain.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. So tell like, you just you kind of opened it up. So why the art, why did the art museum, like as you say, save Detroit? Well, the city of Detroit,
1: for reasons that are historical. Um, You have to recognize what we were talking about before which was that as the automobile industry began to scale and there were a lot of manufacturers and suppliers of important pieces of the car all within the detroit metro area um, this group of up-and-coming industrialists who bought big homes and built them in gross point and wanted to fill their homes with great art because that was a symbol of their status And so they oftentimes worked with collectors. Uh, They bought at the time what were oftentimes avant-garde pieces, or they bought great pieces. And ultimately, those pieces were going to be over-collected, and a lot of it ended up at at the Detroit Institute of Arts. But during the 1910s and 20s, the city government was flushed with money from all the taxes that were being collected pre-Depression and was spending money to buy art. And that every piece of art had had a a chain of title of ownership and a lot of the high quality art in the not the highest quality in every case, but in many cases, the most prestigious pieces were actually owned by the city and in a bankruptcy assets are up for liquidation. Isn't that
0: amazing? (laughs) That's amazing. Like, like, if you really think about that, how like, like, it's almost lucky. It's almost luck in a sense. Right. But. They had assets and the assets was the art and it was able to help them.
1: Well, and so the art, because the philanthropic community did not wanna see the art uh, collection broken up. Uh, and, <clears> um, <throat> so they came came up with a lot of cash that was matched in part by the state and, and contributed to by donors to the, to the museum and created a pool of funds to pay pensioners yeah. over a period of time. So the city wouldn't have to give the city a chance to kind of get its services back in order, and that was how they exited from bankruptcy. But that that deal uh, would never have happened had there not been an art museum. Anymore. No, that's
0: the amazing thing. But it's all. But at the same time, it's the rich people who who saved the city, and and it's kind of like it was. It was they had the they had the money, right? So it's it's kind of apropos that they 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 did in a sense, right? Yeah.
1: Well, I think that when you think about the wealth of many of the foundations that were contributing to this um, uh, effort to what was called the grand bargain, most of that wealth was accumulated in Southeast Michigan. The Ford Foundation's assets, although they have grown them substantially through investment, were the Ford family's money and stock and the company's stock. So. Uh, you know that 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 wealth and a lot of the foundations around, uh, you know, the Knight Foundation owned the newspaper in Detroit. Uh, the Kresge Foundation developed property, but is based in Detroit. Yeah. So you have a lot of important uh, and major financial institu- uh, philanthropic institutions who felt a sense of obligation to Detroit. Of course. Whether that strategy would be exportable to another city facing a similar financial um, challenge, no. Probably not. Maybe some other asset would be uh, in the in the mix. but Detroit is emblematic for having kicked a can down the road for having failed to address problems hundred percent present and simply and so, and that's not uncharacteristic of a lot of cities and of course, maybe states and certainly cases to be made that it's problematic for the country. you know that people don't want to make tough decisions that people aren't really willing to put at risk their political career the next election in order to do something now that they might realize needs
0: to be done I think you just nailed one of the biggest problems and like it's everybody it's all about politics it's all about getting it re and about appeasing the voters and making sure they vote for them not not kind of doing I know it's a kind of an idealistic statement but not doing the right thing but doing what's best to get vote get elected I guess right
1: yeah, I know. I think the most important question we ought to ask people who who seek and serve in public office is, what would be the thing that you would be most proud of that would cost you your reelection?
0: Yeah. So okay. So I was I I touched on in the beginning where where um I'm from Niagara Falls. So so I saw in the '90s and 2000s these cities crumbling. So I'm I'm in the pocket of like Buffalo, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Detroit so i'm seeing all these cities kind of like and i see Pittsburgh, kind of figuring it out right like figuring it out kind of redoing their city and kind of like thriving and i'm seeing cities like buffalo and cleveland to a certain extent and and detroit like having real troubles kind of like evolving and kind of moving to the next generation the next kind of um uh, from the manufacturing to the to the to the information age i guess right so so what happened like why didn't they see ahead? I mean, I know it's a kind of a grand question, but like what 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 was the tipping point like what what occurred here?
1: Well, I, I think the case of each of the cities you mentioned and, and a lot of industrial cities uh, are unique to their own story. You can say, I, I agree with you, for example, that Pittsburgh has redefined itself around the uh, skills and brain power of University of Pittsburgh, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and mm-hmm. Carnegie Mellon. Uh, and of course, that has created a technology uh, center. But remember, George Westinghouse was one of the most brilliant inventors in American history, and he was based in Pittsburgh. And so, yeah. you know, processing food was it something the Heinz Company invented. When you think about how steel was made. The United States Steel Company became powerful because they had a, a form of process that Andrew Carnegie took and turned into a, a monster. So I, I I think that each of those communities have different historical um, foundations which make possible what they become, uh, and/or circumstances that change. And in the case of universities, they create an opportunity um, that's unique, uh, but. When you think about some of these places, there are lots of little places outside of Pittsburgh along the Allegheny River and the Monongahela River where there used to be steel plants and they're yeah. dead. Most towns are dead, whether it's Aliquita <laughs> or Braddock or uh, any of them. And there, there, there are efforts to try to resuscitate those areas, but those are really long hauls. Just like if you think about Detroit, 1.9 million people in 1950, 677,000 people in 2010. That's a lot of empty space. Yeah. You're not going to renew and revise and re- re-envision all of that in 10 years. It took six decades to yeah. get it. So I think that cities are in a, in a very difficult situation in that they are a political target uh, for the people who are running for office statewide, usually state legislatures. Um, Illinois hates it, its Chicago and Harrisburg. Pennsylvania hates its Philadelphia, and and those tensions, Detroit and uh, Lansing being a classic case. Um, plus the the withdrawal of the federal government from feeling that we need an urban policy, which we do not have as as a nation, puts all of these places at risk. Now you think about well, oh, well it's getting better. Well, COVID is going to have an impact on commercial real estate in sure. downtown what it's going to exactly be it may take another year or two to fully uh, what do you
0: this why while you're at that what what do you think it's going to happen well i don't think 100% of the people are going to come back no of you course know? not and it's like within so, those leases are going to are going to are going to expire and then people those those buildings will be empty right
1: well and then the multiplier effect how many more people how, how many fewer people are buying lunch or taking their laundry to the dry cleaner yeah stopping or doing whatever they do between work And afterward, how's that affecting the transit system and its ability to attract customers? Uh, How's it affecting the value of the real estate, the assessed value, the taxable value of that property? How will that affect the city? The loss of wage taxes, the loss of the So that's a problem. When you think about the hammering that the stock market just took and probably hasn't finished taking.
0: No, they're kind of hemorrhaging it. They're kind of like trying to, it's like smoking mirrors right now, right? Like, well, I think I think the Fed
1: is intent on um, keeping interest rates high and maybe higher, which will have a debilitating effect on earnings, uh, which will affect value, than is affected values, and so that affects the the pension funds of all these state and local governments, many mm-hmm. of which were already in trouble, and thought they were going to earn their way out of trouble, and suddenly they are not. Uh, and when you think about the the effect of uh, you know, this the, the environment, the pressures that the environment has on city governments to improve sewage, treat, sewage uh, um, fl- the sewage flow, wastewater uh, yeah. overflow, uh, the backup of sewers to kind of clean the water. There's just so much more pressure on local governments. And so, in many cases, lesser resources to address those pressures. And it's easy to say, I'll deal with it
0: tomorrow. Yeah, and you're not you did you forgot about roads and bridges and everything everything needs to be re, re re fixed again, I guess, right? Well, and and those
1: are things that you would look to the federal and state government to help you with, and hopefully they will. Yeah. But, they're, they're
0: doing tax cuts right now. They're not <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't think well, I, I
1: honestly don't understand how people think we're gonna be a first, you know, a first class nation, a, a world class nation if we have decrepit infrastructure that falls apart um, yeah. but in any, any case uh, the film I think there there's no attempt to try to take sides in this movie
0: no not at all yeah mm-hmm. but it's a, it's an allegory of of the present the past and the future and meaning that like what you're talking about it's kind of like teases that in your film where it's like this is not over yet right like this is like they they you know I mean they, they got themselves back up on on the mantle but this is this could crumble like you said gradually then suddenly in your film in your title in your film that's what happens Every, nobody pays attention to things like it's like global warming right nobody pays attention and then then suddenly there's a problem right
1: well um maybe not nobody pays attention no but-
0: you know i'm talking about i'm talking about people i'm talking about like the, the masses people. right
1: yeah look i think the yeah. detroit did pay attention uh they did a 1.4 billion dollar bond issue which you know, frankly, it was way they were in the deep end of the pool and they shouldn't have been. But it wasn't like they didn't notice that they had a problem. They thought they were solving the problem. Instead, they exacerbated the problem. But that's you know, there's also bad decision making. I would characterize that as one. Uh, but there's no decision. Non-decision making is bad decision making. And that's, I think, yeah. been more prevalent uh, across the board.
0: But it's hard to to kind of like foresee the future in a sense like it's like the because you interviewed a lot of newspaper men and their industry obviously changed. But if you talk to them 20 years ago, they're like, no, nothing's going to change. The Internet will be fine. And like there's still going to be newspapers. They weren't foreseeing the future. So then therefore they 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 turn a blind eye and they that's how they all crumbled. And it's sort of like the same allegory where like it's like the city in itself. It's like, okay, so these jobs are going overseas. These factories are not going to be there anymore. GM is a public company. It needs to make a profit every quarter. So we're not going to, you know what I mean? Then all of a sudden it's like, okay, so what happens if we lose all those jobs? It's like the city's going to be in trouble. So what are we going to do about it? You know what I mean? It's like, it's not, things are going to take care of itself is not the answer, I guess. Right. Well, one of the things about losing jobs to overseas is that American consumers want to pay less. Sure, of course that's what I mean. And then but then also the corporations want to make more money too, right? Let's yeah, let yeah. all have to say that. So we don't want to pay what the real cost of building a car in the United
1: States is. Yeah. We would rather, you know, source parts, if not assembly, uh, elsewhere. And um we've demanded that some of those jobs come back, but they've come back to a large extent to um places where labor is not quite as strong as they are in the midwest and the northeast Mm. so um i I do think that the automobile industry uh, one of one of my interviewees unfortunately passed away but he uh, was a brilliant uh, observer and writer about the automobile industry and in the movie he says they didn't look up to notice that there were a bunch of toyotas coming down the road and um (laughs) That that kind of is. They were so busy fighting themselves, exactly. And the unions too, right? The unions were fighting uh, management, uh, and they were fighting themselves so much they didn't bother to notice that this mm. competition, the world had changed, and customer demands had changed.
0: I'm a pro union guy, but I was in the inside of the, the GM unions. Those guys they had no idea what the future was was coming along. They were like they had they they weren't they didn't see it. They couldn't see it. So they were they were talking about a macro they're fighting a macro pro a micro problem and there was this macro kind of asteroid coming towards them and they weren't paying attention to it. Uh,
1: well, I would say that's absolutely accurate. Um, the but you know the same is true. I I would argue and I'm like I'm, I've been shouted down when I have argued this that the uh, the leaders of the unions representing municipal employees in the city of Detroit did a did a disservice. Hundred percent.
0: I agree, I agree with you. I couldn't agree
1: with you more. When they when they failed to say, wait a second, we got to look at this problem of our pensions and make sure we're okay, and not be assured by um, false assumptions, which they had used. They were assuming they were going to earn nine percent a year. Well, they they weren't going to do that. And the, when they started to lower the the discount rate, meaning the investment rate, uh, to a number that was more well, maybe not realistic, but a little more realistic, mm-hmm. the size of that unfunded liability became enormous. And, you know, you, you can stick your head in the sand, but eventually you're going to have to pay. And so, um, yeah, and, and we, had a, we had a tremendous team of people who put this film together. So, uh, the the music by Daniel Slapkin, who was, by the way, the son of the former conductor of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. Um, we had... Uh, a uh, superb um, um, director of photography and Jeff Sakkis and he was excellent and just a great team across the board um, editing and graphics i i'm very proud of the graphics in the film because they were useful in helping tell a complicated story without spending verbal audio time uh, on that anyway we're we're really pleased and uh,
0: particularly yeah. no it's a, i was curious about um Who conducted all the interviews? Were you a part of that process? Because you got a lot of really great information because they they told the story, the interviewers, right? So, yeah, I I
1: did most of the interviews, but James did some of them um, and particularly some of the local interviews of community um, activists and citizens. Um, But I did all of the public finance, uh, law professors, public officials, all those because i came out of the public finance business i i spent a big part of my career helping cities and states and lots of organizations public organizations finance projects so i i i talked the language but the um um the most of the interviews i did and uh, i i i i never really understood how important it would be to capture storytelling uh in those interviews but fortunately because we had such great storytellers yeah they all told stories and and we were able to use that <clears throat> whenever we had a problem like do i understand this did i just did what i just watch did i really understand it will the audience understand it and so uh when i whenever we would confront that which we did obviously a lot and in fact still do well
0: you know, credit to you and your team to to for for putting getting because it's it's hard to get the interview subjects to. the, the velge all that information. You guys did an amazing job. You must have made them comfortable and relaxed and and confident that they. You guys knew what you're doing, I guess, too, right?
1: Well, you know, I can't answer the how, how confident and relaxed everybody was. We we everybody usually starts off not confident or sure. not relaxed. Yeah, and so it's just a conversation until you get to that point, and you might actually find them saying something in that moment that you hadn't anticipated, nor had they. <laughs> uh, that becomes the yeah. gem that you. Uh, you know that you find, but the the interviewees for the most part were extremely knowledgeable. Many of them were directly involved in the bankruptcy, uh, or in the politics of Detroit, or had written journal articles about municipal bankruptcy, or had you know watched and spoken out against it, or had covered it. And so we didn't need a we didn't need a narrator. Because the people of Detroit, yeah.
0: The yeah, it was. It's a great. It's a really nicely put together film. Even the framing of your interviews subjects is really like, it's something that nobody talks about. But it's like you didn't make it boring. You didn't make the background boring. And there was a thematic going on in every interview as well. Like they were they were positioned totally in a perfect way. So whoever set that up too did a marvelous job.
1: James McGovern, my colleague, who's co-director and co-producer really deserves most of the credit for having um driven the imagery and the look of the film and I, I commend him for it because it was it isn't i'm a documentary filmmaker but i do historical documentaries and while i do different kinds of backgrounds when we do interviews they they were not as important um, because the history and the storytelling and the archival material is really more important reenactment scenes that we film in historical documentaries but in this one, there, this this gritty feeling of the city, or the feeling of being in the world of pinstripe bankruptcy professionals, or being on the streets of it, being in the courthouse, you know, the idea of animating um, some scenes, which we were forced to basically because COVID kept us out of the courtroom with a reenactment crew, and yeah. so reenacting uh, Judge Rhodes in the courtroom, we animated it, and I think that worked out pretty well. It worked it was
0: amazing. It's a really obviously nice product like even your website bankruptcyofdetroit.com nice solid website it shows it does all the information it's a really nicely put together film I'm assuming that you're looking to get to get uh, distribution on a on a streaming service or what is your kind of plan for this this film
1: Well I would characterize my plan as hybrid um, because of the mission of the film and its function uh, and the fact that it was philanthropic it was philanthropically supported so it's not under pressure to return capital to investors uh the film had is is the canary in the coal mine and i want to use it uh in ways that i hope will be creative and effective to to draw audiences to it live audiences uh and then to follow that with conversations about um you know embracing challenges and uh, I hope to make the audience rife with uh, public officials, their their staffs, and yeah. the, the the civic ecosystems of, if you will, of you know, twenty five to thirty communities around the country that are having a hard time financially. They're not necessarily in the queue for bankruptcy, but they are distressed financially. And, and, I, and as uh,
0: you said, things are good. Things are shifting in a different direction, right? Because of COVID influence and and the. Yeah. F- the, the things are changing. People are working at home from a, you know, a, and that's and that's the ripple effect of, of many different changes, right? For the most part, the uh, future of cities had
1: its central business district very critical to its economic um, revival and or thriving. And to the extent that that geography is impacted by attendance at work, um, that that momentum is going to definitely be thwarted. Uh, we'll see. It's too early to say. I think a year is a year. A year is not a trend. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of distress out there, and uh, I think because of the factors I mentioned, and as well as others, and demands, because because the cities are, are home to more impoverished people. Um. So I I I do think the city of, the cities of America are are in for the and they're on their own. And that's the thing that I, I find the most disheartening. But uh, hopefully we can wake some people up because there's a lot of value out of cities. There's a lot of creativity that comes out of cities. And there's a lot of GDP, gross domestic product, that comes out of cities. Um, so you well, know, we have, a, I think the film will will travel two tracks. One will be these, these um, scheduled uh, screenings with Q&A. Gotcha. Uh, the country. Simultaneously, virtual screenings with Q&A for graduate schools of journalism, law, urban policy, government, and so on, at museum management. Um, and then secondly, to travel down the VOD route. And and I have to say, I'm getting an education on that. And my, my sense is it's more likely to be a VOD as advertising because it can be on multiple platforms and you're not exclusive.
0: Yeah.
1: But, but we'll see. We're in the process of, of looking at opportunities. Uh, the film has been off the market, if you will. It's pretty much been on my, uh, you know, I can send somebody a Vimeo link, but it's not being shown anywhere. Uh, we've gotten into a couple film festivals, although at that this point, I think our, our attention is past that. And we did win the um, 2021 uh, Library of Congress, Levine Ken Burns prize for film. So I think the affirmation of the film's um, quality was
0: derived very early. Yeah. And hopefully, people will get to see it. Well, thanks for submitting to our festival, because uh, the, the, I think I like I re, when I watched this film for the first time, I was like, "Yes, this is a great film." And we brought the audience to you in the audience feedback video. What did you think about what the audience had to say about your film and from our festival? I was very anxious before I hit the hit play button. <laughs> uh, the first
1: person I don't remember uh, her name, but she was kind of young, and I thought, "Well, wow, what's a young is a young person." But those responses were heartening, uh, affirming, and uh, very. I was impressed by the extent to which uh, people seemed to get what we were doing yeah. and uh, understood it and appreciated it. And so I thought it was probably the most valuable feedback we've gotten, um, you know, in this process.
0: Oh, that's incredible! Well, congratulations on the film success, and uh, it seems like you guys are doing. I like the philanthropic uh, kind of point of view, and and you just want and for you, you, just want people to be educated and enjoy the process and learn from it. And as you said, there's a future ahead of us. so I, I wish you the best of success with the film. Maybe we'll talk again when you make your next film.
1: Well, uh, that would be lovely. <laughs> I hope too. I really appreciate uh, being recognized by the LA Documentary Film Festival. Uh, i am uh, very pr- appreciative of the time that you've taken. i I thought this was fun. And uh, I don't know about the next film <laughs> 73 Well, <yeah. laughs> oh, you just, you, you <laughs>
0: called it the next, the next film yeah. is the COVID. How COVID has changed the ripple effect of changing yeah. the big
1: cities, right? I, I suspect that film is either already in production or close You'd be to being. be surprised.
0: You'd be very surprised. <laughs> uh, I love Detroit. Yeah. Um, they'll, they'll never figure out their football team. The Lions will always be a disaster. And uh, other well, than they're that, getting, I wish...
1: they're getting better. I have to say. Oh, I mean, they're,
0: they're not. not. <laughs> they're not. <laughs> they have, uh, I know. I'm just... a team. They got the wrong coach. <laughs> they have the yeah. leading the team. But uh, other than that, they're doing great. They got the, the downtown is is reviving. Uh, music is music scene is reviving. Um, it's a really fun uh, city. Hope people can go to it. I appreciate your time and let's talk, like I said. But hopefully, we can talk again soon. Thanks for having me. One,
1: two, three,
0: four, five, six, seven, eight, shame, 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 shame,